Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Oriana Bandiera. I'm a professor at the Department of Economics and one of the past directors of Sticker, which is the research center sponsoring this event. I'm really happy to be here tonight. You're in for a treat. Uh, to introduce Daniel Chandler, a student in our department, who has written one of the most important books that an economist could read, could write. <laughs> right. uh, it is a book that makes me proud to be an economist, because it is a book that deals with the important matters in life. It deals in particular with the role of luck that we very often discount. People, if you are in this room, you're probably among the very luckiest on the planet. We often discount that. And uh, the weight that that should be given and how a fair society should be designed without, of course, depriving us from freedom. So enough for me. I welcome the very distinguished panel, the, uh, Professor Margaret Levy, Professor David Rochman, and Polly Tomby. They will uh, talk right after Daniel. He will go for 20, 25 minutes and then 10 minutes each and then we'll open to the floor for discussion. Daniel, all yours. Thanks. Thank you, Oriana, and thanks, everyone, for coming this evening. Um, It's a real pleasure to be giving this talk at LSE, which is an institution that's given me uh, a lot, and in this room where I've seen a lot of um, really brilliant speakers who I admire over the years. Um, So I want to start with the question that's the subtitle of my book, What Would a Fair Society Look Like? Most of us would agree that the societies we live in, by which I mean not just us here in the UK, but citizens of the world's rich liberal democracies, are far from fair. Although we might not all agree on exactly what is unfair about them, many of us would point to a familiar list of problems. A political system dominated by the rich, the profound influence that class, race, and gender continue to have on so many people's opportunities in life, economic insecurity, vast inequalities, and a climate and ecological emergency. Those problems lie at the root of a growing sense of discontent with liberal democracy as we know it, a discontent which has given rise to illiberal and anti-democratic populism in some of the world's most established democracies. The most extreme and worrying case being Donald Trump's continued grip over the Republican Party in America and the very real prospect of a second term in office. And of course, far-right parties and strongmen leaders have grown to prominence in France, Italy, Germany, and elsewhere. And in the UK too, the Conservative Party, especially under Boris Johnson, uh, has shown itself willing to undermine some basic democratic norms. In the context of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine and China's doubling down on authoritarianism, the future of liberal democracy looks more uncertain today than it has for many decades. In the face of these challenges, it's tempting to move into a defensive position, Um, but we cannot maintain the status quo, and nor should we want to. We need to recognize the failings of our existing institutions, to recover a sense of the transformative potential of liberal and democratic ideals, and to articulate a vision of what a better society is that people will actually stand up and fight for. Yet that vision, I think, is sorely missing from our politics today. 
we're still living to a significant degree under the shadow of the 1980s or the ideas of the 1980s and the harsh and individualistic neoliberalism championed by Thatcher and Reagan and underpinned by thinkers like Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek. And while I think there's a growing recognition that those ideas have run their course, it's surprisingly hard to find a coherent alternative. And most people would struggle, I think, to name a recent thinker who, thinker who we could look to for inspiration today. The good news, and the central premise for my book, Free and Equal, is that the ideas we need are hiding in plain sight in the work of the great liberal philosopher John Rawls. Rawls is really the towering figure of 20th century political philosophy. He's completely revolutionized his discipline and is routinely compared to the very greatest thinkers in the history of Western thought, from Plato to Hobbes, Kant, and John Stuart Mill. And this reputation rests above all on his book, A Theory of Justice, whose publication in 1971 really marks a watershed moment in the history of political ideas. As the philosopher Robert Nozick put it in 1974, political philosophers must now either work within Rawls's theory or explain why not. And to a large extent, the same continues to be true today. What I think is so exciting about Rawls's ideas and why I think everyone interested in the future of liberal democracy should know about them is that he doesn't just ask the biggest questions about justice and fairness and how we should organize society. He gives us answers. Rawls is a fundamentally constructive philosophy, or his, his philosophy is a fundamentally constructive one, and his aim was to develop what he called a realistic utopia, a vision of the best that a democratic society can be, given the facts about human nature and the way that institutions actually work in practice. And it's that vision which makes his ideas such an unparalleled resource for addressing the challenges that we face today and for building a progressive politics that could actually change our societies for the better. So what was Rawls's vision? At the heart of his theory is a strikingly simple idea, that society should be fair. The idea of fairness, I think, resonates across the political spectrum, but obviously it means very different things to different people. And Rawls proposed a thought experiment that could help us move from the abstract idea of fairness and towards a concrete set of principles that we could use to design our most important political and economic institutions. So he argued that if we want to know what a fair society would look like, we should imagine, ask ourselves how we would choose to organize it if we didn't know which person we would be in that society, whether we would be rich or poor, gay or straight, black or white, as if behind what he called a veil of ignorance. And if we were to organize society in this way, he argued that it would be fair, um, in the same way that someone might cut a cake more fairly if they didn't know which piece they would end up getting. I think it's pretty clear that if we didn't know who we would be, we wouldn't choose to organize society as it is today, where some people have to rely on food banks in order to feed themselves, or where the arbitrary circumstances of birth shape people's lives in such a, in such a profound way. But Rawls uses this thought experiment to identify two fundamental principles of justice concerned with freedom and equality, respectively, and, and hence the title of my book. So first, he argues that we would choose what he called the basic liberties principle. In effect, that we would want the state to respect and protect our most basic freedoms, including personal freedoms like freedom of religion, speech, and sexuality, as well as political ones like the right to vote, to criticize the government, and to organize political parties. 
That first principle provides us with a powerful justification for liberal democracy at a time when both liberal freedoms and democratic institutions are under threat. It's also the basis for a truly inclusive liberalism that can help us find a way through the culture wars, and as we shall see, it can help us develop a practical program to reinvigorate our democratic institutions. Rawls's second principle has two interlocking parts and provides a framework for reimagining our social and economic structures. First, Rawls argues that uh, if we didn't know who we would be, we would want to guarantee fair equality of opportunity to make sure that everyone has a fair chance to develop their talents and abilities in life, irrespective of their class, race, or gender. And that's obviously a familiar principle, but one that we are a long way away from achieving today. Many liberals have been willing to stop here to argue that as long as everyone has a fair start in life, we don't need to worry about inequality. But Rawls rejected that, arguing that in addition to giving everyone a fair start in life, we also need to make sure that prosperity is widely shared. That brings us to the most innovative and radical feature of his theory, the difference principle. So Rawls argued that we should try to, we should organize our economic institutions as a whole in a way that, uh, that would make the least well off better off than they would be under any alternative economic system. So from this perspective, a degree of inequality can be justified uh, since higher pay for some people can, can provide incentives to work or study or innovate but only if this ultimately ends up benefiting those who have less, and not just by a little, but by as much as possible. And that principle provides an alternative both to the idea of equality of any, at any cost that sometimes is associated with the socialist tradition, and also to the idea that we should pursue growth without thinking about how the benefits are distributed that's dominated so much of economic policy in recent decades. Finally, alongside those two principles, rules also uh, argued for a principle of intergenerational justice and, or sustainability, the most basic requirement of which is to maintain the stable climate and vital ecosystems on which society depends. And together, those three principles to do with freedom, equality, and sustainability provide a really astonishingly coherent, comprehensive, and ultimately practical framework for identifying what's good about our existing institutions, where they fall short, and most importantly, how we can improve them. It's hard to overstate Rawls's influence within academia, but his ideas have had relatively little impact on real politics. Rawls's personality is part of the explanation. He was a shy and modest man who disliked public speaking, in part because he suffered from a stutter, and he had little interest in playing the role of public intellectual. It also reflects the politics of the times. One of the ironies of Rawls's legacy is that just as his inclusive and egalitarian liberalism was coming to dominate in academia, politics was moving in the opposite direction. Finally, though, it also reflects the fact that Rawls said so little about how we could put his principles into practice, believing this was a job best left to social scientists. Unfortunately, that job has been sorely neglected, and my aim in Free and Equal, as both an economist and a philosopher, is really to pick up where Rawls left off and set out a practical agenda for how we could make his vision a reality, bringing together the most exciting policy ideas from academia and from around the world. I think part of what's so exciting about Rawls's theory is that it gives us a very comprehensive um, framework for thinking about so many of the challenges that we face today, from how we can overcome culture wars, the role of patriotism in a liberal society, 
through to how we can tackle inequalities based on class, race, and gender, and how we can reshape our economy. And in my book, I try to set out practical proposals across all of those areas. But in the time I have today, I thought I would just uh, highlight two areas that I think are especially urgent and where Rawls has something particularly distinctive to offer. First, I want to talk about how Rawls's ideas can help us reinvigorate democracy. While the vast majority of people in democratic societies still support democracy in principle, recent decades have seen a massive decline in satisfaction with how democracy is working in practice. And in the UK, more than half of the population now think our political system either needs major reform or to be completely overhauled. Restoring faith in democracy is obviously vital in its own right, but tackling the entrenched power of economic elites over our political system is also a precondition for any wider program of social or economic reform. What's distinctive about Rawls when it comes to thinking about democracy is his recognition that simply, simply giving everyone freedom of speech and the right to vote is just the start. For Rawls, political equality is not only about having formal rights, but having substantively equal opportunities to exercise those rights and to take part in and influence the political process. And in a large-scale democracy like ours, this process is inevitably mediated by certain institutions, particularly political parties and the news media. But as things stand, those institutions are disproportionately influenced by the rich. If we take political parties, in the UK, nearly half of all donations in 2019 came from just over 100 super donors, this is donations to political parties, who gave an average of nearly £450,000 each. And the figures are even more extreme in America, where 20 billionaires collectively spent uh, $2.3 billion in the 2020 election, which was more than twice as much as Joe Biden's entire campaign. And this system obviously violates the idea of political equality in a very uh, direct and basic way. So what can we do? I think if we want real political equality, then we should limit private donations to a very low level or even ban them entirely and adopt a democracy voucher scheme where every citizen would have a fixed amount of money, say £50 per election cycle or per year, which they could give to the party of their choice. Democracy vouchers would instantly transform the incentives of our political system. Rather than having to go cap in hand to a rich and unrepresentative donor class, political parties would have to appeal to and engage with everyone. And this isn't just a philosopher's pipe dream. In 2017, Seattle adopted such a scheme, and there have now been three elections run under Seattle's democracy voucher system, where each citizen gets $100 per local... This is a system for local elections. They get $100 per local election cycle. And the results are exactly as you would expect. More people getting involved in politics, often from underrepresented groups. More people standing for office, and incumbents being more likely to, you, to lose. Uh, a similar system, I think, could also be extended to funding public interest news media providing a way to tackle the control of a few super-wealthy media tycoons. And while getting money out of politics should be our first priority, I don't think we should stop here. In countries like the UK and the USA, I think we need to replace our first-past-the-post voting systems with proportional representation to ensure that votes are translated directly into seats and in order to bring about a multi-party democracy that would better reflect the true diversity of opinion in our society. I also think we should expand the role of citizens' assemblies, where the members are selected at random from the population. 
uh, a tradition that has uh, democratic roots going all the way back to ancient Athens, even going as far as replacing, uh, we should consider going as far as replacing the House of Lords with a second chamber elected in that, selected in that way. And the combined impact of those changes, I think, would genuinely transform our democracy and move us radically closer to the ideal of political equality that's at the heart of, of Rawls's first principle. The second topic I wanted to touch on is how Rawls's idea can help us transform uh, or develop a new economic paradigm that would supplant neoliberalism and transform or even transcend capitalism as we know it. I think our first priority has to be to tackle the climate and ecological emergency while there's still time to avoid the worst consequences. And the choices we make now and over the next few years will shape the future of life on Earth and each of us bears a profound moral responsibility not just to take, to change our own individual behavior, but to take political action so that our governments recognize the gravity of that crisis. And in my book, I set out some of the key things we would need to do, or that our governments would need to do, including massive public investment in renewables, the electrification of almost everything, and introducing an economy-wide carbon tax. Uh, but today I want to focus on how we can tackle inequality, since I think it's here that Rawls's ideas have something very distinctive to offer. The failure to ensure economic security and widely shared prosperity is uh, the major source of the discontent with liberal democracy today. And I think there's a growing consensus that inequality has reached unacceptable levels. And yet, for all the talk about shared prosperity or inclusive capitalism, I think those terms are often used very vaguely, and most practical proposals amount to little more than tinkering at the edges. Rawls's difference principle provides us with a more precise and strongly egalitarian definition of shared prosperity. So rather than maximizing growth and hoping that some of the proceeds trickle down to those at the bottom, we should aim to increase the life chances of the least well-off by as much as possible. As the experience of the past few decades has made abundantly clear, although markets have a vital role to play in promoting economic prosperity, there's nothing inherent to how markets work, either in theory or in practice, that means economic resources will be widely shared, let alone that they will maximize those available to the least well-off. In Western Europe and North America, between 1980 and 2016, uh, for example, the top 1% of earners captured 28% of the increase in pre-tax incomes, which was more than three times as much uh, as went to the entire bottom half. The difference principle, though, isn't only an argument for more equality. It also points us towards a much richer and more humane conversation about the kinds of inequality that matter. While most discussion of inequality tends to focus on the distribution of financial resources, of income and to a lesser extent wealth, Rawls, um, just <laughs> lost my place. Uh, Rawls rejected this narrow outlook, arguing that economic justice is not only about money, but about the distribution of power and control between owners and workers, and about the degree to which our economic institutions provide people with a sense of dignity and self-respect. And it's by putting these questions about power and control, dignity and self-respect back on our agenda that Rawls's ideas, I think, can really transform our political debate and point towards a more fundamental reshaping of our economic institutions. In my book, I set out three key pieces to a new economic approach. 
First, I argue that we should introduce a universal basic income or something like it. The most basic duty of any decent society is to make sure that everyone has enough food to eat, clothes to wear and somewhere to live. In other words, to be able to meet their basic needs. And while a universal basic income is obviously not the cheapest way to meet that requirement, our current welfare system, with its tight targeting and punitive system of conditionality and sanctions, creates enormous stigma and stress as well as strong disincentives for people to work. A universal basic income, by contrast, would meet basic needs in a way that genuinely supports the dignity, independence, and self-respect of the least well-off in society. As the philosopher and basic income advocate Philippe Van Parijs puts it, whereas our existing system provides a safety net that fails to catch a great many people it should catch and in which many others get trapped, a UBI provides a floor on which they can all safely stand. While redistribution obviously has a role to play in meeting basic needs, Rawls rejected the idea that we could rely on redistribution alone, arguing that our focus should be on tackling inequality at its source, or what's come to be known as pre-distribution. In practice, this means trying to create a society in which both marketable skills or human capital as well as physical wealth, are much more equally shared. If this were the case, then wages and profits would be shared much more equally, and we wouldn't need to rely so heavily on taxes and redistribution. In practical terms, that means investing much more heavily in education and human capital, particularly for the 50% or the more than 50% of the population who don't go to university, alongside strengthening collective bargaining and minimum wages but it also means finding ways to share wealth much more equally. As things stand in the UK, the wealthiest 10% of households hold nearly 60% of all wealth, compared to just 5% for the bottom half. And if we want to change that in a significant way, then I think we should explore some pretty radical options, such as introducing a substantial universal minimum inheritance, a lump sum payment to every 18-year-old or 21-year-old in the region of £100,000, funded by progressive taxes on wealth. Finally, we need to transform the balance of power at work. The idea that companies should be controlled by their owners is so familiar to us that we rarely stop to question it, but the concentration of power in the hands of owners is a choice, and we don't have to look very far to find very different ways of doing things. In Germany, workers and owners share power on much more equal terms under a system known as co-management or co-determination. So in Germany, workers have a third of the seats on the board of companies with more than 500 workers and half of the seats in companies with 2,000 or more workers. And contrary to fears expressed by many economists, this system has worked remarkably well. Most studies find the overall impact on company performance, whether that's investment, productivity, profits, or longevity, appears to be small overall and is as likely to be positive as negative. In the UK, we've seen proposals for one or two workers on boards, and while I think that would be a good start, I think we should consider going much further, in the long run aiming to give workers half of the seats on the board in most, if not all, companies. And this isn't obviously about pitching workers against owners, but about changing the way we organise our economy so that workers and owners work in genuine partnership. While this rebalancing of power is important in its own right, it's also the best way to expand access to meaningful work. I think there's growing interest in the quality of our working lives, but practical proposals are often hard to come by and often amount to little more than appealing to the enlightened self-interest of employers. 
Of course, we can't make meaningful uh, work more meaningful by government diktat. I don't think anyone wants a department for meaningful work going into firms and telling them how to redesign individual jobs. And I think the solution is to empower workers to shape their workplaces in ways that reflect their values and which strike the right balance between staying competitive uh, and, and delivering a satisfying working life. So just to close, I thought I would comment briefly on the politics of these ideas. I think it's easy to feel pessimistic, as I said at the beginning of my remarks, across the world's advanced democracies, basic liberal and democratic values are under threat today. But there is also reason for hope. After a period of decline, mainstream progressive parties, which I think are the most likely vehicle for, the, for a program of, of this kind, have come to power in countries from America and Germany to Australia, Brazil and Spain. And in the UK, the Labour Party seems likely to win the next election. I think the result is a moment rich with possibility. Just as the 1980s saw the triumph of neoliberalism over the post-war democratic settlement, we are living through another era of transition, the outcome of which will shape political discourse for, and public policy for a generation. But seizing that opportunity will require uh, progressive parties to lead rather than to follow to move beyond the politics of triangulation and focus groups and to make a fundamentally moral argument about why and how we can change society for the better. In an era where voting patterns are no longer tied to uh, class identities, putting values center stage is not just empty idealism, but an essential part of any serious political strategy, since it's values that can provide the glue which bind these uh, disparate groups together. And I think Rawls's ideas offer a genuinely universal moral vision that has the potential both to cut across some of the social and cultural divisions in our society and, importantly, to address the, uh, the economic concerns of long-neglected lower-income voters. In the end, there's no guarantee that these kinds of ideas will become a reality. Indeed, there's no guarantee that liberal democracy will survive. That isn't cause for despair, but a reminder that it's within our power to shape and change our world, whether for better or for worse. The aim of my book is just to help us recover a sense of possibility about the future. And in the end, though, it's up to us, both individually and collectively, to get involved in politics and to help build a society in which we are, at last, truly free and equal. Thank you. I have to say, this book is terrific. It's uh, uh, absolutely fascinating. It's full of extraordinary information, as well as this tone which you could hear from Daniel of, of optimism and, and hope for the future. And it does arrive at the best possible moment, because we are, in this country, at a rare turning point in the national mood, a real, rare turning point in our politics. I mean, I just w witnessed it last week, going out to uh, Lightwater, a ward which is the bluest ward in Surrey Heath. It is, it, it's so blue that the Liberal Democrats didn't bother standing last time. And knocking on doors there, it was phenomenal how many of people who voted Conservative all their life just wouldn't have it anymore. A whole range of reasons, but they'd had enough. 
and it was very inspiring if you were not a conservative state of mind. And um, I, what happened in that was that they threw out all three, all three uh, conservative councillors, three liberals, and took over the um, control of the council. And that was just, you know, one of those moments that will stick in my mind forever. I think when you are at a pivotal moment and you see something happen, uh, and it's after we've been going through all the bad times that I was talking about, I mean, darkest moments of political despair in my life, I think, um, from Brexit, Trump and Orban and Musk and Johnson and Truss, uh, years of absolutely reckless austerity, 13 years of reckless austerity, which we've watched the public realm being stripped bare. Um, so this is a moment of hope and best possible moment for this book to appear. And then just down the road, we have the National Conservatives, a US-based think tank, uh, three-day meeting, um, very Trump and uh, Orban-inflected uh, organization, where they will be hammering away about the small need for the small state for cutting spending, for letting inequality rip, um, and all of those tropes um, of, you know, quite far-right conservatism. And a lot of it is there, a, a lot of what they talk about, Suella Braverman was talking today about, uh, with great passion, about the evils of immigration. A lot of that uh, is deliberately designed to disguise, to divert and distract uh, with culture wars on subjects of that kind, on immigration, Brexit, gender wars, free speech tropes, which are nothing of the sort, um, to hide inequality, to disguise it, not to talk about it. Um, and as like I said, you know, the disengaged and cynical electorate uh, is being encouraged by the right to think all politics are the same, it doesn't make any difference who you vote for. Spreading that kind of cynicism is very useful for them, particularly as they begin to see themselves slipping from power. Um, they would rather talk about almost, almost anything else than the extent to which inequality has gone backwards in my lifetime. And I was taught a history of social progress that was from factory acts to boys not going up chimneys and so on, <clears throat> and it, as an inevitable story of, of onward progress, which was true up until the late 70s. And everything went into reverse, and inequality took off uh, it was the most equal, equal time in our history. And inequality took off in the 1980s. The lid blew off the top, um, and the people at the bottom fell back. And it hasn't changed since then. It hasn't improved since then in any significant way, and may even now be sliding back again, with uh, you know many more children going to school hungry, more food banks opening. Um, we know all the bad news all too well, we know that the NHS is in a state of collapse where it's in danger of becoming de facto a, a privatised system as people just, they can scrape up the money just walk with their feet uh, and leave it as a poor service for poorer people. Schools are being stripped of staff, denuded uh, of all the things that make school education, art, sport, drama. Um, but John Rawls always did have the perfect answer perfect riposte on the basic question of fairness is where would you insert yourself in a society? Would you be, would, would you be happy to be inserted in society anywhere? 
And I'm delighted to see his ideas being revived and given a new energetic life in this book. Um, and the list of what needs to be done is terrific, and you've taken his ideas and made them more concrete. Though I think it still needs physical uh, brain to see how do you translate that into making people do it, which is different to how it could be done. But how it could be done is, you know, is all there and, 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 and very encouraging. Uh, you know, it is written with, with hope, and um, it's, um, it's very good to see, you know, the image of what a good society could look like. Now, I, a lot of these are issues that I and The Guardian have espoused for decades, I have to say, with moderate success, um, whether it's proportional representation, I've campaigned for all my life, escape our rotten borough system, um, state finance parties, absolutely, um, citizens vouchers to pay for it, very good idea, um, to cleanse donors from political politics, citizens assemblies certainly can do a lot to help resolve problems as they did in an important way in getting abortion law changed in, in Ireland. But equality of opportunity is difficult and Rawls makes a very neat distinction between uh, the inevitable passing on of uh, educational privilege and the course inheritance of wealth. And I think Daniel shows how you know, inheritance is growing in importance in terms of uh, people's trajectory. Birth is becoming destiny more, not less, which is extremely depressing. I had a, an argument with Dominic Cummings when he wrote a long tract about how, inherit, how intelligence is heritable. In other words, you can't really do much about inequality because it's all um, in the genes. I spoke to Steve Jones, the geneticist, about this, and I said, can you tell me roughly what you think? How heritable do you think intelligence is? And he hummed and hard and said, probably is a bit, but not a fraction as much as money. <laughs> <laughs> and he's quite right about that. So abolishing fee-paying schools, yes, I would have a lottery for school entry too, because we have a third of our schools are church-owned and control their own admissions very unfairly. Uh, we did have a lottery system at the end of the Labour government brought in in some places like Brighton, but the Tories then banned it. Um, I think working rights, very important, yes. On the board, uh, a very good idea. Don't underestimate how radical Labour's own working employment rights policy is with um, fair deal, with, uh, you know, fair, deal, fair pay deals in every sector, no zero hours, uh, rights from day one, and allowing trade unions into every single workplace because it's almost impossible to organize in care homes or McDonald's or KFC. And this, I think, will be a game changer in terms of balance of power between um, workers and employers. And so Michael Marmot has shown how incredibly important it is that people should feel they have some control over their own working conditions and that they are sicker and more miserable than the, le the less uh, power they have, control they have over their lives. Well, what about the stumbling blocks? Um, I think Rawls leaves out a lot of the human, the human contradictions and difficulties. Um, if you read The Tyranny of Merit by Michael Sandel, he's very good at pointing out how successfully the right has persuaded people that an unfair society is inevitable. Uh, that uh, leaving people at the bottom saying, well, I didn't work very hard at school, so it's my fault I didn't. And the corollary of that being people at the top probably earn it. 
And that's quite deep dyed because people don't really like to feel that their fate is not in their hands. And that's quite a deep psychological block. Uh, you have to persuade people it's not true, and that takes quite a lot of political education of a sort trade unions used to do. Um, also, there's the human instinct for gambling. Well, I'll throw the dice and hope that my place is somewhere up there. Uh, there's quite an instinct for, well, I could make it one day, and I know those people have got a lot more money than me, but one day it could be me, uh, that the lottery impulse that I think also holds back a sufficient sense of outrage at the injustice of the way things are, are organized now. Um, but let's keep to the hopeful visions of this book. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it offers a real pathway forwards. Um, you know, I think we, there is much we can do about the power of money and the weight of wealth and how much it controls our monster press. 90% of it owned by just three companies, one of which is Murdoch, the other is the Daily Mail, the other is Reach, which is swallowed up by the local press, and then there's Barclay and the Telegraph. And they use their, they use their might to make, protect their money and to stop ideas such as this percolating through. And no need to worry about AI warping the truth. We're quite good enough uh, at doing it ourselves without it. Um, I think I'll just end by saying, you know, it's a question of how do we persuade, how do we persuade people that this is so wrong and it needn't be like this, it's not inevitable. I mean, I sometimes say to people, you know, Mrs. Thatcher used to say, she used to hold up a coin and used to say, you will always spend the pound in your pocket better than the state will. You know, the state is the enemy, it's not your friend. To which you reply, think of all the things you care about most safety and security for you and your family, health for you and your family, education, physical surroundings, beautiful parks, sports stadiums, arts galleries, her heritage, all the things you really value that make life feel good. None of those things can you buy with a pound in the pocket. You can only buy them through taxation and through the things that we buy collectively together. And you hope that arguments like that and your book can make some headway and give one to every single uh, candidate, Labour and Liberal Democratic, maybe if the Tories do, for the next election because they need to read it. Thank you so much. Great. Uh, thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Polly. Um, so this book is. Uh, incredibly welcome attempt to close the gap that Daniel talked about in his talk, which is in my world, I think in Margaret's world, um, in the academic study of politics, Rules is an absolutely towering figure and has been ever since A Theory of Justice was published. Um, and yet the world outside of academia has gone the other way. And just as an illustration of this, this, may, this story may be apocryphal, but I think it makes the point. I was told that at Rawls's Memorial service in Harvard. So he died in 2002. Memorial service was in, I think, February 2003. One of the speakers said, It's so great finally that we have a president who takes John Rawls seriously. And for the first time, you can hear arguments about the original position and the difference principle in the Oval Office. And the congregation was slightly baffled because George W. Bush 
was the president, and it was a month before the Iraq invasion, and the arguments in the Oval Office were between him and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld about when to start bombing Baghdad. But the speaker was talking about Josiah Bartlett. And the arguments, the fierce arguments between Toby and others about the difference principle, there are episodes of the West Wing which are more or less devoted to rules. And this seemed like a good example of the way there is a version of politics, but it looks like a fantasy version, a kind of Harvard fantasy of politics. And then there's the world. But it is true that the president who succeeded George W. Bush, Barack Obama, was deeply influenced by rules. Um, so an academic called James Kloppenberg wrote a book, a slightly rose-tinted book, early in Obama's presidency about Obama's intellectual formation, which pointed out just how deeply Barack Obama had read, studied, and taught John Rawls. And John Rawls was an absolutely central influence on him. But the reason that Obama had studied Rawls is because before he was a politician and before he was a community organizer, he was an academic lawyer. And he had studied Rawls at Harvard Law School. And one of the truths of this 50-year story is that Rawls has been very influential, that it has tended to be more the law school route than the electoral politics route. So you know, not those justices who um, are on the right, but more liberal um, justices have been profoundly influenced by Rawls in ways that have had real-world consequences and shaped the way there has been an understanding of some of the themes of this book and, and workers' rights and many other things. What's great about this book is it's not going down that route. So this is, unless I've misread it, this is not a manifesto for Supreme Courts. This is a manifesto for parties of the centre-left. Um, and this is an electoral programme. This is, you know, this is about, revert to Polly's question, this is about getting people to do this, not getting lawyers to do it. I'm not saying lawyers aren't people, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, I don't want to say real people, I just mean, you know, the people, let's call them that. Um, and so this really is an attempt to close that gap because that's where the gap is. So what I want to do without wanting to puncture the optimism is then to pose a question which is a variant of Polly's question, which is the, the sort of how question. How is this going to happen? But picking up on a few of the... So there's a section of Daniel, Daniel's book before he gets onto his programme where he talks about, quite briefly I have to say, some of the criticisms within academia, within political theory and political science that Rawls has been subject to uh, over the last 50 years. There are four that you identify. There is libertarian, Marxist, communitarian, and realist, all quite off-putting academic titles. Um, I'm not going to do the Marxist one, so maybe someone in the audience can do the Marxist critique. Um, but I just want to very briefly, because I want to keep this brief, just pick up on aspects of the other three and to pose a question, but they're all variants of the same question, which is a question about sequence. What is the order in which you think this should be done? Because that is still not clear to me. So one of the libertarian critiques from Nozick, you don't really mention it in the book, but one of Nozick's arguments is that in your perfect Rawlsian society that's fair and free and equal, um, stuff will happen that will sort of unravel it because that's the way the world works. And what are you going to do then? So, so my version of that question is, and I think there is an answer to this. Why are you confident that these things go together? As it were, you give people their democracy vouchers, or whatever it is, and particularly you reform the political system, and that this will reinforce, or maybe even give you, it depends on sequence, maximum, you know, the, the, the bettering of the worst of. But what happens if it doesn't? 
and you know, how committed are you to this? So Rawls's answer, he has an ordering of these things, that the first principle comes first, the freedom principles come before the equality um, of opportunity principles, and they come before the difference principle. Um, but you know, how confident are we that it works? And he says that's what you do in questions of dispute. But how confident are you that it works, as it were, in sequence? And is that the sequence? I mean, are, are, are we sure that you do the political reform first to get people who will then vote for the economic stuff? Or do you need more social, economic fairness for the political reform to work? You know, what if we did it now? What if you gave people democracy vouchers tomorrow? How confident are you it would play out in a Rawlsian way? That's question one. Question two, the communitarian one. You, you use Michael Sandel, but I'm going to use another uh, thinker, social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, um, his moral foundations theory. But what, you know, one of his refrains, slightly annoying, but he says it a lot, but it, it's relevant, I think, for this argument. The moral foundations theory says there are, I think it's five or six dimensions along which people judge right and wrong, of which, as he puts it, fair, you could say fair, unfair, but I think he says fair cheating is one of them. Care, harm is another of these dichotomies. But there are others. There's the sort of sacred and the profane, I think. Um, there's loyalty and treachery. There is um, authority and disobedience. And one of his complaints is that the left is all in on fairness. And you can't do it all through fairness, or fairness plus care. You need to have an account of human motivation that can speak to the other ones. Now, I think Rawls does have that account, but it has to be read through his account of fairness. As it were, his account of fairness will tell you, and you do it in the book, what counts as citizenship. His account of fairness will tell you, as it were, what we should value because we should give it a kind of sacred quality. I think Haidt would say you can't do it all through fairness, that you have to have answers for people, some of which start with questions of loyalty, in-group, out-group, whatever it is. How confident are you that you can start it with fairness and read the others off that? The third one, I'm doing these very quickly, <laughs> the third one is realism. So, you, you, uh, so, so Raymond Goyce, the realist philosopher, is an absolutely brutal critic of rules. Um, and you rightly say that Goyce says the first question of politics is not what is fairness, the first question of politics is Lenin's question, who, whom, who gets to do what to whom. I think it's a bit unhelpful for realists to kind of, you know, if, you, if we're going to choose between rules and Lenin, I'm 100% rules. <laughs> um, I think who, whom, I think it's really sort of unfortunate that's become the realist question. It's a terrible question, right? I think the realist question is when, whence. It's not as punchy, but when, whence meaning what order are you going to do these things in? And what gives you confidence in the way that politics works out there in the world? That this one will lead to this one rather than the other way around. And the whence bit is, as it were, and what anchors it? What, what as it were, legitimates? So, so if all of these things worked at the same time, they would reinforce each other, I'm sure. But how confident can, can we be? And if we're not sure, where, where do we start? I mean, it's a genuine question. Which, what is your order for this? Not what is the lexical order of the principles of justice? But what is the ordering of this? And just one example, to universal basic income, you say in the book, so forgive me if I'm slightly mis misrepresenting this, but you say in the book that you know, full universal basic income, the big picture version of it, is damn expensive and a big ask to kind of get people to rally behind this. So maybe you have to start with a slightly more peace, 
piecemeal UBI, something more modest, cheaper. Are we confident that a more, so in the ideal version of this, the modest version leads to the bigger version? Are we confident that that's the way to do it, that's the sequencing, and that the modest version leads to the bigger version rather than the modest version isn't enough to persuade people that it's made a difference that's worth the cost and actually is self-defeating? Now, I don't know the answer to that question, but it seems to me a really important question for this. Then the last thing I'll say is the critique that you don't mention, but is sort of, you know, I don't remember it, but you know, one hears that this was the critique of the 1970s to rules, which is, this is Scandinavian social democracy. So if you like Sweden so much, go and live there. <laughs> and by the way, you know that it has the highest suicide rate in the world because they're all secretly miserable. That was the sort of you know, <laughs> cliche. I'm not endorsing this view, uh, but it was the view. Um, it's not, I think, a great argument against rules. But what is striking about your book is how much is Scandinavian social democracy. I mean, a lot of the examples are drawn from Denmark, Sweden, and elsewhere. And you know, it's a real question, I think, how and why societies like Britain, which often talk about learning from the best, why don't they? And, you know, how much can we take from these examples? But relative to the claim that you make at the beginning, that this book could be you know, up there with the Communist Manifesto as, as the transformative text, there's something, there's a little bit of bathos around the idea that as it gets more practical, it's more like getting to Denmark. And I want to know about, you know, how you would close that gap. But there's also a question, you know, the real question, which is a political science question, it's a realist question, which is how did Denmark get to Denmark? And did Denmark get to Denmark because Danes embraced something like this? Or is it a complicated when-whence question of history and contingency? Um, a lot of the stories of the origins of social democracy and progressive politics are tied with stories of war and violence. And that can't be the answer to this, but we need another answer. I mean, if, if a realist says most progressive egalitarian politics, if you look at it historically, cannot be explained in the absence of the war that preceded the reform. Not all, but most. And this has to be an argument that this can be done in the absence of war. I think it gets us to some of those other questions about, about motivation. And also those questions about sequence. You can't sort of, you know, a lot of this is path dependent, and Denmark is Denmark partly because it is a very um, homogenous, including ethnically homogenous society. So in the face of that kind of path dependency, there are acute questions, I think, and this book really provokes these questions, and I really want to know the answer, which is, what is the order in which you're going to do this? And it's not your answer, it's not Polly's answer, but the answer can't be, get Keir Starmer elected. <laughs> That's the first thing, right? Something else has to come, if not first, because that might come first, but as it were, more foundationally than that. Do you do the po political reform first? Do you do the economic reform first? I think there is a real question about sequence. I'd love... Everywhere all at once. <laughs> <laughs> I think, isn't that sci-fi? <laughs> That's my question. Thank you so Thank much. So I would wave my copy of the book around too, but I left it in Seattle with my democracy vouchers, <laughs> which I have to tell you do not work, unfortunately. Sorry, Daniel. I know I'm 
deflating. But this does, and I really appreciate the comments you both made. One of the things I do want to raise is how do we get from here to there, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But what I really appreciate about what you've done is the fact that you are really responding to the Sen and other critiques that Rawls is too abstract, which he is pretty abstract, and trying to really make it concrete and practical and figure out how we can use Rawls to understand what's going on today. And the question, one question that comes up for me is why do you bother? And I love what I see as your answer to that, which is that if we're going to make the changes that many of us want and many of us believe the moment is approaching when we might make those changes, they have to be grounded in very good and strong moral foundations. There has to be a basis for our arguments about fairness that are universal and that we can really resonate with and that makes sense. So I, I love that instinct and I love that enterprise. But then how do we evaluate how successful you've been at that? This is in a sense echoing some of the things we've already heard. First, are you totally convincing that Rawls theory should be the foundation? And there's a lot of controversy and contestation about that already, as we heard David present some of that in thinking about the critics. I know you won't um, totally disagree, or agree, sorry, you won't totally agree with Danielle Allen's, I don't know if you've read her new book, Justice yeah. by Means of Democracy, but she's also taking roles and she's a very eminent American political theorist, woman of color, whose new book, Justice by Means of Democracy, is also um, starts with Rawls, but starts with a critique of Rawls. She argues, and there certainly is reason to believe her claim here, that if you're going to achieve human flourishing, you can't start with Rawls because he has subjugated, even though he might not have meant to, political equality and the positive liberties, the political liberties, to freedom and to the negative liberties. And as a result of that, the kind of political equality and flourishing that both of you, I think, seek can't be achieved through Rawls or Rawls alone. It needs an incredible amount of additional theorizing and some additional processes so she, for instance, emphasizes new forms of social connectedness and new form and a, and a kind of difference without domination, which has to be achieved both institutionally and socially. Now, political equality and, and an equality of power is really the goal that she is seeking. And I think Rawls cared deeply about that, but he cared about freedom even more, and that doesn't, as she argues, and I agree here, always lead to the kind of political equality which Tim Besley, Pablo Bermendi, and I, the reason I'm here, is to write a book with them about these kinds of issues, about how we might, what political equality really means and how do we achieve it. We believe it is an intrinsic good, as does Alan, as I suspect you do too, but then the question is, can we achieve it, and how do we achieve it? I will leave the appropriate interpretation to a discussion between you and Alan and others, and I'd love to see that, because I think it will be incredibly productive. 
But I want to turn to another set of criterion of success. It's what you offer in your prescriptions really the path to a just society. I am a fan of workplace democracy, not a fan of democracy vouchers just because of my experience in Seattle with them, but maybe they could be made to work, and a fan of freedom of opportunity and shared prosperity and all the wonderful goals that you laid out, and indeed of many of your specific proposals. And I could provide lots of arguments, pro and con, a number of them. But there are two other major points I really want to make. The first has really already been raised, is how do we get from here to there? And what I didn't hear, I, I support what both Polly and David said in raising those questions, the order, the kinds of processes that would be needed. But one of the things I did not hear you mention, in, or did not see you mention in the book, and perhaps I missed it, is thinking about social movements and other means of mobilizing change, of really bringing people into the picture, including some lawyers, um, <laughs> who might be part of a social movement. Here I, I can't help but think about a program I've been involved with for some years put on by the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences on creating a new moral political economy. And I recommend that you look at the Daedalus issue that brings crowdsources some of our ideas and can be downloaded for free. So look up Daedalus, moral political economy, and you can download it. Okay, so how to get from here to there and how do we think about the kinds of social movements and popular movements that are progressive that might actually help promote the enterprise that you're talking about. I critiqued Daniel Allen's book for failing to give us that kind of information. I also think it's a critique of yours. That's a, a lacuna. The other kind of issue I want to raise really has to do with questions that implicate fairness that are not raised in the book. I'm actually going to say you didn't go far enough. Even though I like your proposals, I think there are some really key issues that we have to think about. One I won't spend a lot of time on, in part because I think we've all thought about this a lot, so I'm going to emphasize it rather than rehearse it, which is really thinking about the limits to growth. That we aren't any longer at a point, we can certainly think about economic prosperity and economic growth, but we have to limit them, and yet do it in a way that we can all be very well off but we can protect the species, protect the planet, protect ourselves, and make sure that people have what they need without having every new flashy consumer good, bigger houses, bigger cars. There are all kinds of new industries that we don't need. So we need to think about how to balance that in order to achieve fairness. We're not going to achieve fairness, I don't think, and equity without really thinking about all of us in this together, including the Earth and all the other species the Earth produces. The second question that I think you don't go far enough on, and almost no one does, is we need to reconceptualize and reframe and reimagine property rights. Our ideas of ownership and property are unproblematized here. Yes, you talk about private property and state property, 
But I'm really talking about thinking about how ownership and sovereignty over land, housing, and other forms of property are not only what define freedom, at least over the last couple of centuries, but also are what restrict freedom. Opportunity and equality, political and economic. The relationship between citizen and the modern states begins in many ways with the right to bar someone from entering your house. Even the government has to have certain kinds of legal exemptions in order to do that. But does that mean the right to shoot someone because they come up to your door and knock by mistake or because they happen to appear on your lawn? So even that kind of right has to be reimagined. And other rights of property are, even, are as clearly problematic, at least to me. Holding property is the precondition to suffrage. So holding um, sovereignty over land and people as the basis of extraction. Of holding capital and wealth. Patents as a means of incentivizing innovation and the creation of pharmaceuticals and other medical things, these have already been questioned. And we need to question them further and really think about what they mean for fairness, for equality, and opportunity. And what about the property-less, those who don't have any property at all or very little? What rights and protections do the unpropertied have? Indigenous peoples worldwide are reclaiming sovereignty over their lands, often claiming, and quite rightly, by the way, that they will, might do a better job of protecting the land and its species than those who have claimed ownership in the last couple of centuries, claimed legal rights through the exercise of might. Those who are homeless or are migrants are in need of places to sleep and, and the possibility of flourishing. Should we think about making apartments out of the various commercial properties and offices that are now being denuded of people, either because of financialization and where profits lie, or because people aren't returning to workplaces in the ways they did before? I'm raising these issues not because I think you had to cover everything, Daniel, but I think you could have pushed a little harder in terms of what fairness and equity involve. And if we seek human flourishing justice and fairness, we do have to be more ambitious. Than the, than, and if we want to be free and equal, we definitely do. So your proposals are a great start, but we need to go even further. Thank, thank you so much for such an amazingly rich set of, uh, of responses, which I'm definitely not going to be able to <laughs> do justice to. And I, I also need to leave time for questions as well. But So I'll just pick up on a, on a few bits. Um, I mean, I guess the big question of how it is that we turn this kind of set of ideas or the, the vision that we might get from Rawls into a political movement, how we think about bringing it about in practice. In a sense, that is also the question... I sort of raise at the end of the book and don't really try to answer. And so it's, a, I mean, it's, I, I'm sort of with you in wanting to know the answer <laughs> and I'm going to disappoint, I think, in not giving one because that is sort of, in a sense, it isn't the question I ask in the book. I felt like 
But, I mean, I, I think what I have tried to do, I suppose the, the bit that the book does try to contribute to that is, uh, I guess, based on the premise that the first step in building that kind of political movement is just to have a clearer idea of what it is that it would be for and that the lack of that clarity of vision has been a real obstacle for progressive, mainstream progressive parties in recent decades and that providing it could help that sort of providing it through this kind of book, through providing an intellectual reference point in the form of rules could at least be the starting point for developing a more coherent um, political strategy. And I, I guess it's worth just emphasising just how much vision and values, I think, can matter in real politics that, you know, I guess that most people are not don't spend time looking at the details of lots of individual policies. They respond to a kind of narrative about where a society is and where it ought to be going. And at the heart of those narratives are typically a set of moral ideas. And I think that has been missing to some degree from progressive politics and drawing on rules, connecting rules as ideas with practical policies could help fill that gap to some extent. I realize that's a, the best, a very partial answer to how these ideas could help, could sort of, could come into practice. But I think, yeah, that setting out that sort of a, a clear moral vision tied to a workable set of practical policies is, is an important, is a sort of necessary but not sufficient part of that. Um, David, on your question about sequencing, uh, that's also one that I, I feel I would need to sort of think more about, really. My, I mean, my instinct is that political reform needs to come first, since all of these, the changes that I'm setting out ultimately have to come from are things that the state needs to do, and that means change, you know, allowing that changing the sort of way that democracy functions is essential. I mean, it's not really an answer because there's a kind of chicken and egg problem because obviously you need to win power over the state in order to change how it functions and to put any of those political reforms into place. But I suppose if if progressive parties are to be in power and to have, you know, could start somewhere, I think I would start there because I think that would then make possible all of the other changes that we need. Um, I'm, I'm not sure on, I don't think I, whether those changes would inevitably lead to a political culture that would then deliver the kinds of social and economic reforms or equality that I want. Uh, I think I'm not so sure about, I don't think there's anything inevitable about that. I think that, and that, yeah, that, the role of that those things would have to be argued for and that a reformed political system would make them more likely and more possible with you know with proportional representation and with parties that were less controlled by the money of by the influence of rich donors i think it would be more likely and easier to make the kinds of arguments for these kinds of social and economic reforms but i don't think anything is inevitable in politics i don't think there's any kind of deductive logical relationship between putting these things in place. I mean, it may be that, I think that, I guess it's not something I go into in the book, the way in which having these institutions in place might reinforce one another in the way that it shapes political culture. I think that's, it's possible, but I, I think I sort of haven't, don't know enough about that to sort of say much more. Um, just remind myself of your, of the, of the many different excellent questions. Um, Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ 
ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories, or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Yeah, maybe I'll come to Margaret some of your questions now. Um, I think the, you know, the role of social movements, again, I, I feel like that would, that feels like it's a big part of any satisfying answer to the question of how one builds a po political support for these kinds of changes. And I would assume that that would have to be a big part of the answer, but having not, I suppose in a sense, not having tried to answer that question, I feel I don't have that much more to, to say about it. I'd be interested, really, I can't wait to read Daniel Allen's uh, book. I was interested in the idea that she thinks that rules subjugates political equality to other freedoms because my interpretation of, him, of rules is that the first principle gives an equal weight to a very substantive idea of political equality alongside personal freedoms and that that's really a strength of his theory because it's that, the idea that individual freedoms trump political ones sits behind you know, the sorts of rulings that the Supreme Court has made in America that have prevented Congress from limiting the role of money in politics. So it may be that I'm, I'm probably misunderstanding her critique because I'm sure she knows Rawls's ideas as well as I do. Um, but uh, uh, to me, a, a strength of Rawls's theory is the, the prominence that he gives to a very substantive ideal of political equality. So that, I guess that's something I'll need to look into. Um, on, on limits to growth, I think I'm with you and I mean in that what I do say in the book is that we need that you know I try to you know Rawls has this third sort of a principle called the just savings principle that's what he calls it in his book which when Rawls writes about it doesn't apply it really to questions about sustainability or the environment but I think it, it very naturally does extend to those sorts of questions and I guess one of the things I've tried to do in the book is flesh out a bit about what that would mean in practice and I think I'm with you that uh, that there are certain hard ecological limits that our economies have to operate within. And whether or not that would allow growth, depending on how you measure it, to continue or not, I think is, uh, is a kind of open question. And if, it may well be that imposing those limits, which is a really fundamental requirement of living up to our commitment to future generations, that might lead to lower growth, and if that's the case, then I think that's what we need to do. So, but I, I agree, I would like to, to look at that more. On property rights, um, again, I, I guess the, I think part of the appeal of Rawls's theory is that he's clear that you know, the rights that owners have are a social choice, and they should be determined by what our goals as a society are overall. They don't sort of come out of heaven in the way that uh, some libertarians like Nozick's almost suggest that they that they would and so I you know and I suppose the bit of property rights that I've tried to complicate and suggest we change in a way that would promote fairness and equality is particularly in relation to the rights that shareholders have over companies but I'm very open to the idea that property rights in other dimensions might also need revision and I think Rawls's philosophy would support that very much in the way that conceptualizes property rights as something that we have to decide collectively how to, um, you know, what they should be in the interests of a certain set of, of basic principles and a vision of fairness and equality. Um, okay, that's my attempt to, <laughs> to answer some of those questions. I, send, I wish I had a better uh, 
idea about exactly how to build a political movement. Maybe people in the audience will be able to help us. Thank you so much, Daniel. And now we open it to uh, questions from the audience, but since I'm sitting here and you're sitting there, I'll ask you a question first, if you don't mind. Yeah, please. Um, and my question, which is uh, inspired by everything that's been said, is the following. We have a system of in economic incentives where people are paid to perform. And for this system to work, people have to believe that it is their performance that generates the outcome. Otherwise, if it's not their hard work, it's just luck. There's no point in working. So this is how our system works. But in this system, those who do not have much, it's also their doing. So when Rawls says, put yourself from the point of view of the worst of person in society, there's no discussion is why the person is so badly off. And our society is built to make us believe that that person is so badly off out of their own doing. So I think that you know, we need to change both the system we reward and uh, the diffuse ownership and the shareholders make these things much worse. There's plenty of evidence the CEOs of large companies, which are owned by people like us, you know, through pension funds, they are completely due to luck. CEOs are rewarded for luck. And so then we are expected to believe that the people at the bottom are there because of their own doing. So that there's something there yeah. that should change. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think that yeah, I think Rawls is also a critique, a critic of the meritocratic idea that people should just be rewarded in proportion to their contribution, and that reflects their their sort of inherent merit uh, in favor. You know, so I think it's it's that notion that underpins this idea that the people who get a lot deserve, you know, fully deserve it, and that those who don't, uh, you know, are responsible for their for their fortune too. And that's I guess that's a big part of Michael Sandel's critique of the of the meritocratic ideal too. And I think I would so I think I sort of share the the sense that that is, you know, it's a way of thinking that undermines people's sense of self-respect, and it's not the way of justifying inequality that's at the heart of Rawls's theory. For Rawls, the reason that people get, some people get paid more than others isn't because they deserve it in some deep moral sense, but because they're doing, because, because by them being paid more, other people will benefit, and I suppose that, that provides a different, more reciprocal way of thinking about inequality that I think would still, you know, some people would still have more than others, but the way that we as a society think about those differences wouldn't sort of create, wouldn't point to people as, as winners mm -hmm. and losers in the same way, would be underpinned more by a sense that of reciprocity and people having more because in doing so other people benefit too. Those are exactly the people that you have to convince to change the system. Uh, questions? So the lady in the middle there with the black shirt and up. Thank you. Um, I'm curious to know uh, how robust do you think the justification for Maximin is as a social welfare function, given obviously there are critiques of the way that arises. You know, Hassania had argued that actually a veil of ignorance gives rise to an average utility principle and there are you know, various conditions under which these are sort of justified. Um, but also uh, what you think about more wholesale critiques of like welfareism and preferentism. Um, so I'm thinking of the work of Sen and Nussbaum on the capability approach as an alternative. 
We take three questions at a time. Right. I guess here yeah, the gentleman in front. Thank you. That was a, a very interesting panel. Um, the, the issue of sequence that came up uh, several times, um, and I think at one point um, David also said the word history. Um, and um, it seems to me that this is an enormous resource for investigating the issue of sequence rather than prognosticating about what it might be in the future. There are many, many cases, some of them national, but many of them subnational, uh, to, to be drawn on. And I wonder if your book might provoke uh, a volume uh, examining when rules has turned into practice on occasions. And the, the couple of examples that struck me in your book were the Porto Alegre well-known participatory budget setting uh, experiment, which has now been running for a very long time and seems to have really significantly changed that city, which is a very large city at one and a half million. And the other one is we've mentioned um, getting to Denmark this evening, but it seems in your book um, Finland is the one that we should be interested in. One of your more eye-catching um, proposals was the abolition of private schools, uh, which for many people in Britain will think, yes, that's really nice, but it's never going to happen. However, um, you've pointed out that in Finland this is precisely what's happened. So it would be very interesting to know how that was achieved. Was it a social movement? Uh, what was the reaction to it? Because a lot of this is to do with those questions about how to put things in place. It's, it's a dialectic that goes forward in time, and, and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And culture, politics, economics are all involved in this. And I think you're you're at the start of that, you're working on ideas and ideology, and it's uh, very important that we start with that. So I think your book is very important. Thank you. And over here, over, over there, it's easy. Thank you very much, very thought-provoking lecture. Um, I will ask my question, then provide a bit of context of why I'm asking it. So can, can you hear me? Yes. yes, but you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll be very brief, brief yeah. I, I promise. So the question is, will remote work bring us closer towards one of John Rawls' principles of equal opportunity regardless of where one is born? And the context I'm providing is that I work for an NGO called Generation.org, which is reskilling people globally, but we've noticed that in countries like Colombia, Ghana, Romania, where we prepare people for digital jobs, those jobs don't exist there. So we're trying to help connect the vulnerable people we help with job, jobs elsewhere. So remote work is the, the topic here. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, so first on the argument for the difference principle, um, I won't go into it in full just because <laughs> it might take too long and there's a, there's a more detailed discussion of that in the book. I think one of the, one of the main criticisms of Rawls' argument for the difference principle is that it rests on a, a sort of unrealistic degree of risk aversion um, and I think that it was one of the, that's one of the arguments where I think Rawls was not very clear in his early work in a theory of justice and then explicitly revised his argument for the difference principle in later work. So in his book, Justice as Fairness, a Restatement, which is his sort of final book and the most, the sort of, most, the sort of mature version of his theory, I guess, he is quite clear that the, so the, the Maximin argument so basically, that applies is there for the 
uh, is important for justifying the, the basic liberties, the first principle. So um, the, the Maximin argument is that you should, God, I'm going to forget now under pressure, um, that you should, no, minimax, you should, Maximin, yes, you should choose the, if, when, when you have a set of options, you choose the one that's in, uh, the option in which the least bad outcome is as good as possible. Um, and for all, that's essential to the, to the case for the basic liberties principle because we wouldn't want to take a gamble on our most fundamental freedoms. But it's not so central to the argument for the difference principle, which basically rests on a more on a sort of balance of other arguments in the final version of his theory. So, and I think basically, sorry, this is not a very adequate explanation because I'm forgetting the details now that I'm on the spot. Um, and but the basically in in his more mature work, I think Rawls recognises that the argument for the difference principle is not as decisive as the argument for protecting our most fundamental freedoms, that it, it depends on a more finely balanced set of arguments and that there are a number of different economic principles that are reasonable and that the difference principle is the most reasonable because it's the principle that would be most likely to secure the support of the least well-off and that the, the overall aim is to you know, design a society in which everyone can endorse the principles and the institutions that it's based on and that we worry particularly about the least well-off because they have the most reason not to support society. So that the sort of the main argument for the difference principle rests on that more than the technical uh, maximin argument. Um, on the question about history, which is coming, I should say, from my... Uh, so my first degree was in history, and Simon was my supervisor uh, for some of that. And uh, so I mean, this book is, does not have a lot of history in it, and I'm feeling a bit guilty now. Um, but I, I completely agree with you that, there's, that when it comes to questions about political change and how it might happen, that there would be a huge amount to learn from history, and I would be really interested to explore some of that and bring back... Mike gets back to David's issue about path dependence as well, really yeah. exploring that. Yeah, so that seems, I think, that seems more likely to be a more fruitful avenue for answering those questions than the kind of uh, philosophical approach that you get from Rawls, I think. That's why Rawls, on his own, doesn't have all of the answers and we shouldn't expect him to. Um, on remote work, I think that's very interesting. I, I, whether it would provide more equality of opportunity, I don't know. I suppose I think of equality of opportunity more in the sort of, as being more to do with our education policies and the degree to which people are able to develop their talents and abilities. But it would definitely seems likely to expand uh, the chances that people have to participate in, in economic life in a, in a helpful way. Um, I'm sure there's other nuances and maybe downsides that I'm not thinking of, but my instinct, too, is that, um, that, it, that it would push in that direction. So just in the spirit of Simon's uh, point about learning from history, I don't know if there's a one-sentence answer to this, but can you say in one sentence why the democracy vouchers didn't work in Seattle? Yes, I would like to know that, too. Is it because people didn't use them? Yes. <laughs> but why not? Why did they? <laughs> Sentence two. Sentence two. The problem was that people didn't really understand how to use them, so that could be corrected. Two, they didn't think there were, they'd have much effect. I mean, again, they weren't, I think the, it wasn't really situated as an experiment that 
was imposed by a couple of people who believed in it without really educating the public who were to use them. But even people like my husband and myself who could read up and think about it. and At some point, we thought, this is silly. I mean, they're really not making much of a difference. And we've got to figure out about candidates at a point when you don't really know enough about the candidates. So there were lots of layers of problems. Did it, did it ban all other donations? Sorry. Presumably not. No, this is very interesting, but I think we should come back <laughs> to that. Sorry, that was my fault. <laughs> So I think uh, uh, we owe you a mic, and then there are questions from uh, the online crowd. Do we have some? Okay. So he goes first, and then one question from online, and then we close. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you a question which I suppose tangentially touches on the point of sequencing, tangentially touches on the point of equality of opportunity. Bearing in mind that sort of the institution of the family is one which is inherently anti-equality of opportunity. People get passed down financial skills. People get passed down some form of like access to education. People within the same education uh, environment, they're 40% more likely to finish it if, if they come from the top 20% of the income bracket. How do you balance that trade-off between the institution of the family and freedom? Because presumably either you have to tolerate this inherent inequality or you have to bash family. Presumably rules would like that. And we take a couple, one from. Uh... Okay, there's one from Kevin Bruce. What's the panel's view on the idea of introducing universal basic income? Sorry. Okay. That's good. Not, yeah. not for me, that one. <laughs> uh, so, just on the family and equality of opportunity, <clears throat> I think it's important that Rawls's first liberties principle takes priority over his equality of opportunity principle. And as part of that liberty principle there, I mean, Rawls doesn't discuss in detail the question of the rights of parents, but other, um, other philosophers have developed that in more detail. And I think the, the way to think about it is that uh, there, are, there are certain parental freedoms that are really essential, and those are the freedoms that parents need in order to have the kinds of close relationships with their children so that, that, are so, that are essential for children to develop and for, for family life to exist. So that you know, includes things like you know, being free to read to your children, to introduce them to your friends, even if those things, doing those things might ultimately lead some children to have advantages that others won't have. So there's, there is a limit on how close we can ever get to perfect equality of opportunity. But most, much of the way in which families transmit inequality from one, there are lots of things I suppose that families do that pass um, their advantages on from one generation to the next that aren't protected by that first liberty principle, including the example of spending money on private schools. That, that isn't a freedom, that's not equivalent to the, the freedom that parents have to read to their children because it just isn't essential to family life in that same way. So I think that's the, that's the distinction that I would draw between where you can and can't intervene in family family life is by thinking about the freedoms that are necessary for parents to have the kinds of relationships that they need to have with their children. Daniel, I, can I help you here? Yes. Because <laughs> one of the things you talk about is pre-distribution, so part of it is compensating for families that can't provide as much for their children for any of a variety of reasons. And so I think you might want to speak a little bit here about some of the, your ideas about pre-distribution. Yeah, so I guess that's the other part, I guess, is recognizing that there's, well, that there's the, the, the education system to some extent can uh, compensate for the differences in 
that uh, the different ability of parents to pass educational advantage onto their children, but there's also a limit to how much the education system can do, and we also just, you know, bringing about a more equal society overall in terms of income and wealth, whether actually I think it's through pre-distribution or redistribution is also an essential part to achieving equality of opportunity. I'm not can sure I, if that's where you thought I Can I say something here about the education system? Would you say that if you're looking at pre-distribution, it means starting at birth, really, yes. with a sure start type programs based on the American Head Start program, uh, where if you do intensive help with very young children, very young families, it really does pay dividends. It doesn't necessarily convert children with a very hard start into brain surgeons, but it protects them from all the worst things that may happen to them. Yeah. I mean, the results are phenomenal, and yet people still don't really get it, that you know, university doesn't do much to people. Yeah. Apart from the sorting hat of getting in, what really does actually get into changing lives is at the very youngest age. And that, yeah. we're looking at sequencing, I think that's where I'd begin. Well, the other piece oh. of it that I would add is actually... Very <laughs> unruly <so> panel. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I want to say one thing about UBI. But. Yes, exactly. We have the question. And then we can continue later, because I know they're going to shut us down in, at 8 o'clock precisely. <laughs> can I say something? No, we can't. No, you can't. Is there something quickly about UBI? Yeah, yeah, no, of course. So, so this is my answer, but um, a couple of days ago I was recording a podcast interview with an American computer scientist called Gary Marcus, who's known as a real skeptic mm -hmm. about AI. Um, and he's you know, a critic of the hype, you know, that it's all going to change everything. Are the killer robots coming? He said no. Uh, Self-driving cars, it's further off than you think. But the thing he said is definitely coming is UBI because we don't know, when we haven't appreciated yet, how quickly this is going to upend and hollow out our understanding of work. It's surprising that a skeptic about AI, the one thing he was confident is coming, is a form of universal basic income which gets to all these questions about sequence and path dependency and what are you going to do in the absence of war. Other things are going to upend our societies and you have to be ready with your program for when the opportunity comes. I'm glad you're, he's so confident. He, they won't just let people starve on the streets. They. 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 opinion on UBI? I'm more of a skeptic of UBI, and Marcus is not totally a anti-AI. He's a no, developer no. of AI, so but, he's right, only, But he's a skeptic about the hype, right? He's a skeptic about the hype. But the UBI experiments that have been going on, I mean, for UBI to work, it needs an incredible amount of money. And every experiment that's been done with UBI is with a very small amount of money, often with a very limited time frame. And so I, I'm, I just think there's some better and faster and more humane ways to get there than UBI. <laughs> We have time now, I think. It's 8 o'clock. Yeah, 8 o'clock. Just on time. So let me thank this wonderful panel. Sorry that I had to contain the enthusiasm. <laughs> and let me thank Daniel for a fantastic job. It seems that this is just the start. So. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.